You are listening to audio from The Table. If you'd like to learn more about our community or donate to this ministry, please visit thetabletx.org. Grace and Peace Table Podcast listeners, thank you for joining us yet again. Brett here, and uh, this is a special Sunday because we are beginning a new series titled Unclean, Drawing Close in a Runaway World. So at the table, we tend to engage different types of series. Sometimes we'll go through a book of the Bible. Sometimes we'll join the church calendar and do you know something along the lines of like Advent or Lent or Easter. Uh, but this series is going to be different actually than anything I have ever done. Um, what we're going to do is engage a, a Christian book titled Unclean by uh, the psychologist and um, Christian writer Richard Beck. And then what we're going to do is kind of allow that book to help us um, see and read the Gospels of Jesus in in a new way, a way that I pray allows us to be just better, more faithful followers of Christ. Um, so that's kind of where we're, we're going in this series. So the title of the message this week is The Danger of Disgust. The Danger of Disgust. So the heart of the book Unclean revolves around something called disgust psychology, which on its face, uh, it just may not seem like overly relevant to your life, uh, much less the church and Christian faith and such, um, but which upon reflection, I, I think you'll see it, it really does actually inform a huge part of our lives and our world. So um, now before I jump in, I should warn you uh, a few things I'm about to talk about will be sort of like gross. Um, forgive me. I promise the whole sermon and the whole series won't be like this. I just need to kind of lay, lay some groundwork. Set the stage to combine multiple metaphors um, for our series um, as a whole. So, okay. So what on earth is disgust psychology? Well, basically it is that human, oh so human reaction. We have two things that we find utterly revolting. Uh, for example, there are certain foods um, like some of you, you may find certain, you know, textures just like of a food, like, uh, it just gives you the heebie-jeebies or like smells, or maybe it's even just the sight of mold growing on the leftovers in your fridge. <laughs> you, you know, you, you see it, you smell it. You're just, Oh, it just, it's disgusting. And you have this like bodily facial reaction to it. Um, or it could be, um, body products. This is something else that triggers disgust in us. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, vomit, sweat. I have um, three preteen boys who live in my house and they don't realize it yet, but they need deodorant. And so I'm very familiar with um, the kind of gross nature of such things. Um, or there's animals um, in particular kinds, right? Not, not dogs generally, um, but, you know, say rats. Oh, my wife, Maggie, she hates rats. Like just the idea that a rat is in the room next to her. She doesn't have to see it. Like just, it just makes her skin crawl. She just freaks out. Or uh, maybe you've had a moment of like realizing suddenly that an insect is crawling up your leg and you look down and it's got those beady eyes and those prickly legs. And you're just like, ah, I know people, um, I've seen them freak out about June bugs and just, they just find them utterly revolting and disgusting. Um, I personally, I, I think the June bugs are cute. Um, okay, or dead things. Of course, we can really struggle with when something's 
you know, Dad, you come upon roadkill or something, and it's just, oh, it, it, it um, sends shivers through you. Um, or violations to the form, like the outer form of the body. Um, for example, if you've ever watched uh, sports and then seen like a really bad injury, and you, I mean, you almost can't help but make a face, you know, and, and maybe you're like, oh, the elbow, it's not supposed to, to bend that way. And you like, you know, you make the face and you're just like, oh gosh, oh, that's so, it's like gross. Um, in short, anything that, that kind of makes us wrinkle our nose or pull our head back or turn our face away, you know, that, that is often discussed psychology at work in us. So, okay, so what's going on with this? Like, what's going on with disgust? So there's a few things, um, a few kind of purposes for this. In part, disgust monitors the boundaries of, of the body, and our body in particular. Um, like a good illustration of this is um, saliva. So I would, I told you this would be gross, sorry. Okay, I, so I'd venture to guess that none of us have an issue swallowing our own saliva. <laughs> but... If I said, um, hey, go ahead and spit into this perfectly sanitized cup and then drink it back, <laughs> you would probably find that gross. Now, if you think about it, though, this is so weird. Like, why? I mean, it's literally your spit. Like, you are going to swallow it anyway. <laughs> but see, psychologically, it's different. Why is it different? Because it has left your body. It's no longer on the inside. Now it's outside. Now, now it is other. Now it is alien to me. It is not me. It is outside of me. So disgust um, has to do with boundaries. Disgust psychology also has to do with um, expelling, um, like getting out what should not be within. Uh, of course, the like vomit um, d d is a perfect example of this. Um, I also wonder if this is why people get weirdly obsessed with cleanses. Are you one of those people? <laughs> like people get really into, you know, just this idea of like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm purifying my whatever organ or something, you know, like my liver. I just, I'm just on a cleanse. I'm just, I'm drinking nothing but lemon juice and cayenne pepper for a week. And I'm just ridding my body of these toxins. Even if the cleanses have been shown scientifically to be like somewhat dangerous, but we just keep right on doing them because, you know, we love a good ex, ex, what would be the word? Expellation? I don't know if that's a word, but, you know, expelling. This is, this is another thing that disgust psychology um, has to do with. So boundaries, um, expelling, but perhaps above all else, uh, disgust is really um, about contamination, so this is why when you, for example, go to a restaurant and you get your lovely bowl of soup and you are, I mean, it's your favorite restaurant. It's your favorite bowl of soup. You're so excited until that moment when you, you lift up your spoon and trailing from the spoon is a long piece of what? Hair. <laughs> and immediately, what do you do? Disgust psychology kicks in and you wrinkle your nose. You're just like, oh, and now here's what's interesting. It's not enough though to simply remove the hair. Like if the waiter or waitress kind of walked up to you and they're like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. And they just grab the hair and they just kind of take it out. And they're like, okay, go ahead. Enjoy your soup. You would say, no, I don't know whose hair this is. No, send this soup back. Why? I mean, you just got it out. Like the problem is removed. No, it is ruined. It is contaminated. Uh, 
in, in his book, Dr. Beck, he shares a study done by another um, psychologist, Dr. Paul Rosen, where he, um, he took a glass of juice and he put a dead cockroach in it and he kind of swirled around the spoon. He then removed the cockroach and then offered that glass of juice to um, a person, to a test, a test subject, um, who had, of course, watched the whole thing. And, you know, he basically offered them the juice. And predictably, pretty much everyone declined. They're like, eh, no thanks. Uh, but here's the twist. He then offered to sanitize the juice. Like, boil it, even filter it back to the level of tap water. Like, no more juice even in it. It's so been, it's been so purified. It's just water now. Um, so here's the question. Would you drink it? Most people, interestingly enough, do not. Now, what's going on here? I mean, it is, it's purified. It's good. It's basically just, it's just water. But psychologically, you see, it's, it's not. It's been contaminated. It once had a cockroach in it. I don't care if it's been boiled and triple osmosis purified or whatever. It doesn't matter. Once contaminated, always contaminated. Can you see that? that a lot of, of discussed psychology, this is really not about like reason or logic. This is, it is a deep feeling, a deep psychological feeling. It is a sense of, you know, disgust, revulsion, contamination. Oh, these things go so deep within us. What, what is going on here? I want to unpack contamination a little bit more. Um, so Becky gives us four principles of contamination. First, it's about contact. Right, contamination occurs because there's physical contact or even just closeness. Um, contamination, the, the second principle is it's it's really kind of dose insensitive. So it doesn't matter if it's just a little bit contaminated. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. Like uh, even just a little bit spoils the whole thing. Um, the third principle of contamination is permanence. This is back to what we just named, once contaminated, always contaminated. And then a fourth um, is negativity dominance. So a pollutant defiles a pure object, never vice versa, right? So if you drop your napkin on the floor, you don't think to yourself, oh, good, I'm so glad my napkin can clean that floor. It looks, it looks dirty. No, it's the reverse. The floor has done what? Ruined my napkin. That's negativity dominance. The pollutant is the more powerful thing. Now, I know you're probably wondering, what on earth does, where is he going with this? Um, well, left at the level of rotten foods and insects and body products, disgust psychology probably wouldn't be that big a deal. You know, in fact, it might only be a positive because it would just keep you from ingesting harmful substances and things like that. However, disgust psychology does not stop there. It does not stop at things. This is a reading from Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 9 through 12. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, 
It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If I had to capture this entire, uh, not just sermon, but really this series in just a few statements, it would be this. The danger of disgust is the way it invades our moral imaginations. It is not merely things that we come to view as unclean. It is people. You see, what's so interesting about the story from Matthew is, I mean, at least by my count, like almost everything we just talked about is there. Uh, Three of the four signs of um, contamination are all there. Like first you have the, the holy, the, the pure Jesus, right? He then invites the morally unclean person, the tax collector to follow him and be his disciple. But then it gets even worse. Jesus enters into the polluted man's house. Oh, and then it's worse. Matthew's unclean friends, they're all there. There's more of them. (laughs) And then to top it all off, Jesus opens his mouth and eats with them. As I said, from my count, that's three of the four marks of contamination. Number one, contact. He's in the house. Number two, permanence. Notice that the idea is Jesus is now um, kind of permanently or at least semi-permanently making himself unclean by being with morally unclean people. Third, negativity dominance. There's no thought here that, oh, good, I'm so glad that Jesus, that wonderful, holy, pure person, I'm so glad that he is with those folks. They could, you know, really use a good friend to get them on the right path. No, that's no, there's no thought that Jesus might be rendering people clean. No, he is now being rendered, what? Unclean. The danger of disgust is the way it invades our moral imaginations. It is not merely things that we come to view as unclean. It is people. But why? Why does disgust jump in our minds from things to people? And in a way, notice it's not just when like the people are physically like, oh, they have dirt on them. That's what, no, it's, it's not about that. Um, what Beck names is that it's about moral metaphors, If you think about it, both the Bible and our own cultural ways of speaking reveal that we tend to speak in metaphor when it comes to sin. The way Beck sums it up, he says, all sins might be equal, but all metaphors are not. For example, um, you've probably heard people say something like this. There was just a season in my life when, man, I was just lost. I was like on the wrong path. I was like selfish and angry, unkind, addicted. I was just on the wrong path. Oh, but Christ in his grace, he found me. Now, see, what's beautiful about the metaphor of being lost is that you can be found. Um, Or you might say, there was like the season of my life when I was sick. Not literally, but like my soul. My soul was sick, but then Christ in his grace, he healed me, he restored me. See, what's uplifting there is um, about this moral language is that when you're sick, well, hey, God can heal and restore you. But but what if you or or those other people are morally dirty, impure, unclean? 
See, this is a different level of metaphor. By, by level, I mean it's, it's different in its psychological power. Um, feeling lost or feeling sick um, is different from feeling as though the very essence of your being is somehow dirty, unacceptable, monstrous. In other words, the, the dangerous power of a purity metaphor is that it triggers disgust psychology in us in a way that other moral metaphors do not. Right? That's why saying you are toxic or you are dirty that carries such a, a, a powerful emotional punch in a way that saying you are on the wrong path, <laughs> that just... You know, I mean, that might be a little hurtful. It just doesn't have the same oomph, you know what I mean? And and if you think about it, what's the emotion that flows from the purity metaphors that we use? Shame. Purity moral metaphors stir up shame in us like nothing else. One of the um, iconic images of the last um, 10 years or so is of Pope Francis uh, when he embraced, kissed on the, the forehead, um, prayed for a man with neurofibromatosis. If you um, Google this, you can, you can find these images. Um, they're so, so powerful. So neurofibromatosis, this is a condition where your nerve endings sprout tumors. And... There was, uh, so you have this, this picture um, or a series of pictures of the Pope embracing this man. And um, he was interviewed later. The man's name, um, it turns out, uh, is Vinicio Riva. And he was um, interviewed after this encounter. Um, and he shared some of his thoughts. He said that with other people, he is so accustomed to just, just decades of, of um, stares of shock and fear. And so he said that he was initially quite confused by the pontiff's lack of hesitation. Um, the quote is, he said, he, the Pope, he didn't have any fear of my illness, Vinicio said. He embraced me without speaking. I quivered. I felt a great warmth. Church, tonight... I have both an encouraging word and a challenge for you. The encouraging word is that some of you might feel in your own way like Venicio Riva. And God's word to you is that you are not unclean. You are made in the very image of God. You are worthy of love. And you do not have to live in shame. Now, what's the challenge? Well, the challenge is that without knowing what was happening, we are day in and day out tempted to become like the Pharisees. Driven by purity metaphors and disgust psychology, we're tempted to think of others as unclean. But God is calling us to more. God is calling us, like Christ, like Pope Francis, to draw near. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.